Hey guys, Sarah here. I wanted to give you a heads up about today's episode. I'm interviewing Dr. Jessica Hockman. Full disclosure, she is a pediatrician and she is my kid's pediatrician. I was nervous for this interview because we talk about topics like vaccines and masks that have become very divisive and political. So I want to make a few things clear before you listen. Number one, Juna as a company does not have a position on this issue. And anything that I personally say is not meant to be an endorsement of Juna's position. Number two, our goal with this podcast and everything we share at Juna is to give you the most accurate and up-to-date information we can find on pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood wellness, and then let you make the decisions with that information that work for you and your family, knowing that those decisions will all be different for each of us. Number three, I've seen many influencers and brands appeal to the emotional side of these issues, and while emotion may certainly play a role in your decisions, our intention is to provide statistics and science and leave the emotion out as much as possible. Number four, Dr. Jessica's perspective is one of many. If you have someone you would like me to interview for the podcast, please send me a DM on Instagram at juna.moms. Lastly, parenting is hard. Deciding whether or not to vaccinate your children, especially in this zero to 12 age range, is hard. We shouldn't judge one another for whatever decision we make because at the end of the day, we all want what's best for our kids and we'll come to different conclusions on what that looks like. Thanks for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy questions before just so I don't forget to press record before we get started no so you just want to talk about you can ask me anything but is it just going to be about COVID and vaccines or did you Um, want to talk about other stuff it will be about COVID and vaccines but but also the implications of dates and masks and yes like the COVID is going to be the umbrella I think in general okay 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 great so you want to do mass mandates okay and then let me know if there's if you have a different feeling about it or you want to give me your opinion. I, I like hearing. All I will. The I will. I I'm going to be honest. This I I am nervous about this podcast because it yes. is a controversial, totally controversial yes. thing. Um, so <laughs> I've, I've been mulling over like quite because like I have feelings about the vaccine in general and and I think a lot of people do and it's the vaccine like everything else has become political and like it's yes. you're on one side or the other and you're either a good person or you're a bad person and by the stupid. way I think that you should say that I think that's a really honest I, I think I think what's making everything so hard is that it's becoming you're on one side or the other and I think the reality of humans is we have concerns, we have worries, and it's not a good thing to be scared to ask about your, your worries or your concerns. That doesn't yeah. mean you're a bad person or a not caring person or that you don't care about your grandma. And I think people are taking it that way. Yeah. In, I think I want to make sure that this conversation is also included in it. So why don't yes. you just... Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. Why don't anyways, you start yeah. by introducing yourself yeah, so but, that people I'm know. Say, uh, yeah. I, Okay. (laughs) Okay. My name is Dr. Jessica Hockman. I'm a pediatrician. I work in Oak Park, California, and I'm really excited to be on this podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm thrilled to have you. For the listeners at home, Dr. Hockman is also my kid's pediatrician, and so I'm thrilled to have her on the podcast. She has been a very solid, sturdy voice on COVID and vaccines. And when I say solid voice, someone who's not fear-mongering, I think there's a lot of that out there right now. I think there's the media has played a very big role in how we're thinking about our safety, our kids' safety. And I think that's a scary thing. And so I'm so thrilled to have you. I think that this conversation is probably long overdue, but it's probably coming at perfect time considering they obviously just authorized the emergency use for the vaccine in five to 12 year olds. And I think it's 
soon coming for zero to five, right? I think, yes, six months to five. But by the way, thank you for that. That's the highest compliment to tell me that I've helped anybody help with fear. So I appreciate that. You, that, uh, you, you, you have very, it's funny. Every time I've come home from the doctor's appointment, I always make a note to my husband. I'm like, let's just be nice because I feel like your perspective has been just such a solid one in the thank crazy you. two years. <laughs> like we had a newborn and like all that. And so, yeah, thank you for your wisdom. <laughs> no, thank you. It means a lot, honestly. And yeah, I'm thinking about your perspective. Oh my goodness, to have a baby during the pandemic. Yeah. It, it, and it is, I will say, it's been a very interesting thing because I think everyone was just making decisions based on the information that we had when we had it. And that has just been the last two years. Like we make decisions based on the information that we have right? when we have it. And new information is always going to be coming out. And I think that's obviously part of this discussion right now. So why don't, like, let's, like, how do we table set? How do we table set? <laughs> so they just authorized five to 12 year olds. I think that's probably a, like I have a five-year-old, but that's my oldest kid. I think a lot of our listeners are in the earlier stages of parenthood, but I think a lot like this will be pertinent to everyone. So can you just, I guess, like first talk about um, like what, like, what, like maybe we should just back up and talk about sure. co- COVID as what the risk is for kids zero to 12. Okay, COVID, dun, dun, dun. All right. (laughs) So COVID has been obviously an awful pandemic. We've all felt it. It's touched all of our lives. But as I put it, the best part of COVID, if there is a best part, is really how well kids have done. The best predictor of good outcomes from COVID complications, COVID disease, hospitalizations has been age. It's a striking difference in terms of rates, going to the hospital, passing away, if you're a child. So that's really been the shining light. And I've been lucky enough to be as a doctor during the pandemic that I'm a pediatrician because I've been able, fortunately, to see kids get COVID. And I've also been able to really reassure parents that their kids are going to be okay. So in terms of rates, all right. So generally speaking, and this may surprise some of you listening, but the CDC estimates that as of last June, so it's probably higher than that now because I was pre-Delta, that 42% of all kids have already been exposed to COVID. And they now think it's probably over half of kids, which is really interesting because I'm sure a lot of you out there listening, your kids may have had COVID and you never even knew it. And what's so fascinating about this is that half of kids that get COVID, we think are asymptomatic, have no symptoms at all. And most kids that get COVID have mild symptoms. It looks like a cold, a a runny nose. Some kids have what we call GI symptoms or maybe diarrhea, some stomach aches. Some kids have mild headache. The symptoms get a little more more intense as you get older. So teenagers have more typical flu-like symptoms. Fevers is what we'll see. But kids before puberty especially have very mild symptoms. The rate of hospitalization has varied throughout the pandemic, but that's been somewhere like one in every 250,000 kids, one in every 300,000 kids get hospitalized. So that's, those are staggeringly low numbers. Yeah. I know it. I think what's really hard in all this is just to think about risk in your head because we throw out numbers, one in a hundred thousand, it's really hard to conceptualize, but one in every 250,000 is a very forgiving number. I like to think about the biggest stadiums that I can picture like the biggest place that fills up, that can fill up people. So I think of the Rose Bowl in in our, in Los Angeles where I live. And I think it seats like 92,000 people. So we could fill it up three times right now. 
This is for the five to 11 year olds, three times filled, which is a lot if you picture that in your head. And only one kid of that three times filled stadium would make it to the hospital. And it doesn't, and if a kid goes to the hospital, it doesn't mean they're staying in the hospital. They usually go home within the week. There's been some certain, you know, certain situations where we've seen more kids in the hospital. So for example, in areas where vaccination rates have been lower. So we saw this in the South during the Delta peak. We saw more kids go to the hospital just because there were more numbers of kids getting COVID. But yeah, kids are luckily doing very well. The other thing is the kids that do go to the hospital and tell me if I'm talking too, too long, but kids that do go to the hospital, two thirds of them have what we call comorbid conditions. So they're either obese, have diabetes, heart disease, a neurologic condition, so not to say that all, all kids obviously are very important. We care for all their well-being. We don't want anybody to go to the hospital. But if you're a parent of a healthier kid, that can tell you that the risk is even lower. Mm -hmm. And if you're a parent of a kid who has some of these conditions that I mentioned, it might be really important to get them vaccinated as soon as possible and take care of their health. Yeah, so, so that's we can go more into the risk of children. But I, I think the other thing I'll put in perspective is there's no such thing in my mind as zero risk. So I think we've forgotten that, or a lot of us have forgotten this as we've gone down the COVID journey, is that we're trying to stop everything. And that's just not real life. So the things I'll compare it to, for example, when we drive, 2,000 children a year on average die in a car accident, right? 1,000 kids, or 800 to 1,000 kids a year pass away from drowning. And as a parent, I still wouldn't, I, I still would keep my kids in swim lessons and put them in the pool. And I'm still going to drive my kids to school and drive them places. But I do things to lower that risk as best I can. I watch them in the pool. I make sure their seatbelts are on when we drive. And I think about that with COVID. With kids, there's never going to be zero risk, but we should do the best we can in a reasonable way to lower that risk, but still live, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or else what are we doing? We're home all day and not right. seeing friends, not seeing family. That's not a good way to live, not a healthy way to live. We're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about the Juna app, the app that makes this podcast possible. Juna is the premier app for every stage of motherhood with a 12-week trying to conceive plan and workouts, key nutrition information for every week of pregnancy and postpartum, plus six full video courses on birth prep, breastfeeding, newborn care, infant sleep, sleep from four to 12 months, and starting solids. The app is designed to be your number one companion from trying to conceive through your baby's first year of life. It also includes daily diaphragmatic breathing exercises, pelvic floor prep, daily tips, and notes from me that are relevant to the exact things you are experiencing. These are so helpful for easing any fears and preventing the dreaded gestational Google mania, that sickness where you can't stop Googling every little thing that happens during pregnancy. Juna is available for both iOS and Android. Just search Juna in the App Store or go to Juna.co. Again, that's Juna.co. The app is completely free to try for seven days, and if you decide it's not right for you, you can cancel any time within the first week. No questions asked. Download Juna today and get started. Now, back to the show. Now, I'm curious, do you, yes. when you say we do things to lower that risk, are you specifically saying get the vaccine? I think that's a way to lower your risk. Yeah, okay. absolutely. But there's other things too, like this may not sound, this is not easy in any way, but if you have a kid that's overweight, maybe this is the time to really take it seriously 
and and be active and try to think about ways to improve our health. I know that's always easier said than done, but there's other things we can do. Getting outside, I think, is really important. Yep. We've learned that vitamin D has been correlated with poor health outcomes with COVID, especially with older people that are in the ICU. And I honestly think that's not really so much that we're missing vitamin D, but more that it's a sign that vitamin D is a marker of health, is a marker of being active. Mm-hmm. And I think it's showing how important it is that we are active, get outside and stay healthy. Yeah, I, I know. I think it's it's sad because I think that if there were ever a time that making better health choices were to be at the forefront of our decision making, because evidence has shown that if you have all of these comorbidities, then your likelihood of, is going to, you have your risk is higher. And it's, now is the time. Let's get healthy. Let's start making other systemic changes within our families. But right. um, it, I can, um, this is obviously, I sh- we should edit this out. Like, yeah. like, if America can take a pill, we'll take a pill <laughs> instead, no, instead right. of doing the hard work. And I feel like right. that has very much been what the vaccine has, you know, it has, right. it's like, oh, we don't need to make all these other hard decisions. Like right. now we'll protect ourselves. And that's great. Like this is, this is why we have vaccines, but. No, it's, it's one very... piece of the puzzle, right? right? I think of, I look at the vaccine for kids. It's a, okay, the vaccine has been incredible. It's been a miracle. And for children, I look at it like it's a bonus. There are some kids that have gotten sick during COVID. There's not many, but there are some kids that have gotten sick. There are some kids that have died from COVID. The survival rate is is incredibly good for kids. We're over 99.99% survival rate. And we think that probably 90% of the kids that have passed away have had serious health conditions that go along with it. So it's been a really a miracle how unscathed in general kids have been from COVID. But right, I think, yeah, I do think the vaccine is definitely a way to to lower your risk. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the vaccine. Did I... <laughs> No, that's perfect. And, so, and by the way, and I think what's, and I find what's so hard when I watch the news and you hear about a scary story about a kid, oh my goodness, it's heartbreaking. It's hard not to think about your own family. Mm-hmm. And I have to step back and think, okay, what are the risks? What are the real numbers? Because if you think about what I call anecdotes or stories, it's going to be really hard to live without anxiety, without, with minimal anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I find it true on all sides. We, we hear about anecdotes about really bad vaccine reactions that make people nervous. And then we'll hear anecdotes about really sad COVID stories that make people nervous. And I think that's the part, I think that's the hard part about the living in a world where we have access to media 24-7. They know what gets the views. It's always these sad stories. And so I do find it really helpful to keep the actual like risks in in mind to help keep perspective. Yeah. I also, another thing that that media does is they use data, but don't actually, it's like the percent, they use percentage numbers and you're like, what's the number? Because of two is very different. Like it's, it's very easy to make things work in a very clickbaity format. And I think a lot of people who have a rudimentary understanding of statistics don't get that. And it's just, I, yeah, it's a terrible world, the information that we have access to and what's vetted and what's out there. Right. No, I think there's all sorts of ways to think about the numbers, think about risks. Like one, One example I'll give, and tell me what you think about this. I'm curious, but the new thing everyone's saying, the age group five to 11, people say, oh my goodness, there's an urgency to get the vaccine, which I do think the vaccine's important. 
but there's this urgency because it's the eighth most common cause of death in this age group. So when you hear that, you go, oh my goodness, the eighth most common cause. Wow, that's a high number. But when I look into it closer, I actually feel a little better about the number. So the number was 66 deaths, which is not not terribly small. It's definitely something. But above that number is was the influenza. And okay. way above that number too, accidents were the number one cause. As I was mentioning, like car accidents, swimming, mm-hmm. things like that. And then when you break it down even more of those 66 deaths, like most of those kids had other health conditions going along with it. Not to say that they don't matter or, or every, every death matters, but more that psychologically, we never got this crazy during flu season right. for our kids. And we never thought about stopping playdates and quitting their sports and not seeing family members during flu season. I don't think, nope. even though that was ranked actually seventh as the cause of death between five and 11. So not... I'm not saying like all these numbers are important, but more just we've catastrophized COVID beyond, I think, what we're, what the reality is. Does that, yeah. what do you think? No, I think that's actually, I'm, I didn't know these numbers. So I'm glad that you brought them up. I think the fascinating thing to me is that, and I don't want to get too far ahead of the conversation because we yes. want to talk about these yes. mandate, vaccine mandates, but we certainly don't mandate kids get the flu vaccine at school. And if that's the seventh leading cause of death and COVID is eight, then what are we are we saying here? That doesn't, I don't understand the logic. I could play both sides. I think people that are for it would say, we're in a pandemic. This is different than the flu season, but it's a pandemic. So we want to really stamp it out as best we can. Um, but then, yeah, I do agree. It's the, I think it's the vaccine that's the most similar to the flu in the mm-hmm. sense that it's a respiratory virus. It's really hard to make a vaccine for a respiratory virus that's perfect because respiratory viruses mutate all the time. I'm not sure what it implies for the future. Will we be needing, if there is a mandate, would that mean we'd want a a vaccine every six months, every year? I don't know if the public's going to go for that. But you're right. I, I I do actually think there's a lot of similarities to the COVID virus and the flu virus in the sense that the vaccine won't end up being a perfect vaccine over time. It will it's working and it's doing a good job, but over time, it's inevitably going to work less and less. Okay. So what are the risks right now? I want to, I want to, I want to, I wanted to, cause you say it's, it's working, right? Like the, yes. the vaccine is working. Yeah. I think it was, the numbers were, it was like 90%, like 90% effectiveness in, yes. in kids. But those numbers were so, like, a, it was like, what was it, 1,600 in the Pfizer trial and then, or 1,700? There were 2,238, I believe. Okay. In, I've said that number so many times, so it's a, a it's in, it's in there. <laughs> it's in. But of that number, two-thirds got the vaccine, so about 1,500 got the vaccine, right. and a third got the placebo, 750. Now, that number's a lot bigger now, not fully vaccinated kids, but kids are obviously um, getting it in their pediatrician offices and in drugstores. Mm-hmm. So they've, a lot more have gotten the first dose. So yep. we'll get more data soon. But yes, from that first Pfizer trial, about 1,500 kids actually got the vaccine. And so what they meant by 90% effectiveness is that in the group that got the vaccine, there were, I believe, three cases of COVID and the group that didn't get the vaccine, there were, I think, 16 cases. So remember that was a group that was, it was half as big. So that ended up being 90% plus effectiveness at preventing symptomatic COVID. So what I like to point is, yeah, it looks like the vaccine works, but it also wasn't that surprising. Like we didn't really get great data in the sense that it wasn't that many kids. So everyone wants to know, well, what are the risk factors? And also I want to know, 
So there's the risk part you want to know. People talk a lot about myocarditis. Is that going to be a thing mm -hmm. for little kids? Will we see that in five to 11 year olds? And because myocarditis happens at most one in 5,000, we think, it's really going to take a lot more kids to know if there's an appreciable risk to that. Right. And on the other side, what I want to know also is it's not enough to give a vaccine in my mind to prevent if it's just a cold. Mm -hmm. I want to know, are we preventing things like hospitalizations, death, long COVID symptoms, which hopefully that will be the case, but it's going to take a lot more numbers to know if that's true. I'm very yeah. hopeful it is, but I, I, it's hard to say that for sure at this point. I think like when I think about the buzzwords that my friends are talking about, it's like it's the concerns around long COVID and okay. and Missy was yes. like a, a big one early on. I feel like though that was so rare, like it was yes. very few kids and most of them had autoimmune issue. Is that, am I making that up? It had. No, Missy is, okay. re yeah, MISC, multi-system inflammatory condition is, it is real. Um, I believe there's been, I think, 48 deaths as of last week. Okay. What's been, and the average age is nine. That's pertinent in the five to 11 year old vaccine approval. Um, but what's been interesting about MISC is that the rates, people don't really talk about this, but if you look on the CDC's website, the rates in the past couple of months have plummeted. Um, okay. We really haven't seen any cases in the last couple of months, which I don't know why that's happened. Um, it's really interesting. I'm not sure if it's because kids are now mostly immune to COVID or what's going on. But thankfully, we, we are seeing the rates go down. I hope that stays that way. But yeah, there's been a lot of cases and most of the kids, they can get sick. They can go to the ICU. But by and large, most kids do survive. There is a treatment for it. Got um, it. Okay. okay. So that's... <laughs> Yeah, sorry. And, and then you said long, I see, COVID. Oh, long COVID. Yeah, long COVID is an interesting phenomenon. It's definitely real. It's more correlated with severe disease. So luckily, it's not that common in kids, although it's possible because kids don't tend to get that sick. They don't tend to get long COVID as frequently. The most common symptoms, the, the studies have been all over the place, by the way, with long COVID. I think there's still more to find out. But in the UK, they did some, they did a good, the best study I could find so far. And they found that after two months, or after eight weeks, 98% plus kids were fully back to normal. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's good to know. So <laughs> I guess when so, <clears throat> it seems like, I'll tell you my hesitation. Yes, and then, tell me. So I feel like so, I'm throwing out a lot of data out there. And it's I, good. I it's, it's, okay. it's, it's very good. I, th I think about, um, I, obviously you're my pediatrician, but you've made it very clear to me. And that's, that's always been in the back of my head is that like, kids do really well with COVID. And so I have not, like, I don't have, I don't have, we don't have family nearby that my, it's not like my dad is here or my mom is here or my in-laws are here who are older and at an, at a higher risk group. And so like, hard. I, I, yeah, no, it is. <laughs> it's, it's, it is so not hard. easy. But so I, when we're evaluating risk in our family, like I'm thinking about my kids and us, like that's what I'm evaluating. And COVID's not, a COVID's not a huge risk for my kids. Like, I think that they will do well. They are healthy kids. And I think that if they were to get it, if they might have already had it, like that they will do well. Yes. And so I am not lining my kids up to get the vaccine. That's just I, I want to know more about the impacts of the vaccine before they get vaccinated. And so what would you say to me that? Yes. No. And I appreciate you being honest because I think a lot of parents feel hesitant to admit that out loud because 
I don't know. I think people are worried to be criticized for saying oh, I'm something Oh, go- like I'm going that. to be criticized. <laughs> I'm sure. No, but I will tell you, okay, so Kaiser did a study, the Kaiser Foundation did a study with parents last month, and they found that I think 27% of parents want to get the vaccine right away for 5 to 11. 33% want to wait and see. And then there's like another quarter that don't want to get it at all. So if you're listening out there, so I think it's great. If you want to get the vaccine, I think that's phenomenal. It's fantastic. It'll keep your kid from getting symptomatic COVID. Who doesn't want that? That's great. And then I, and I also think you're not alone if you want to wait and see. There's a, a big percent of parents that feel very similarly. And I think that's really reasonable. I think, I think that's a very reasonable perspective and it's an honest perspective. And I think, but I think, gosh, as a parent, you just want to do the best thing for your children. So I understand it. Yeah. And so I think my issue is that in our state, we that choice is like starting is going to be removed. Like they're looking at mandating vaccines for schools. No, I agree with you. (laughs) I think. Yeah. No. And I agree with you. And I think so. what, What I guess what disappoints me is I'm so for the vaccine. Right. But then I'm not for the mandate. And I think when I come out saying I'm not for the mandate, that somehow makes me appear not for the vaccine. But that's not true at all. I just I look at I just wish I think there's a better way to do it. I think there's a better way to gain trust in the vaccine. I I, I think part of me, there's a few ways, reasons why I think this. One is as a pediatrician, I've I've been doing this for 10 years in private practice. And when I first came out of residency, the teaching, when I came out of my training, the teaching is you do the vaccines and why wouldn't you do the vaccines that it helps prevent so many terrible illnesses. And I had this mindset when I first came into practice and I met some parents that were vaccine hesitant and I couldn't wrap my head around it. I hadn't really met anybody that was vaccine hesitant. And I, the way I approached them was what it does all these great things. It prevents illness. It's, these are wonderful. They've been around forever. And, and I don't think I was really listening to be Mm -hmm. honest. Like when I look back I wasn't really getting with them, that, that term like getting with them. I wasn't really listening. I wasn't asking, why are you nervous? What are you reading? Let me, let's talk about this. Let me think about where you're coming from. And I find like patients, if I came at them where I wasn't really listening, they leave. They'll mm-hmm. find a holistic doctor. They'll find a different doctor. But if I can actually listen to where someone's coming from and hear their concerns and, oh, you read that on Google, but let me show you what I've read. Okay, let's talk about this. Would you feel more comfortable? I know two shots are scheduled today. What if we did one today and one next week? I find that when I can work with patients that are nervous, it feels much better to me as a doctor that they're comfortable and it feels much better to the patient and they gain trust that way. And I feel like when you come at patients not hearing their concerns in a forceful way, Mm -hmm. it just doesn't feel as good. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like the right thing to do. And people, not everybody, some people like the mandates. They're like, okay, there's a mandate. I I don't have to think about it anymore. I'm just going to do it. But I do think it really turns people off. I think, I think it can go the other way. And God forbid we're wrong. Like you make a mandate and I don't think we're going to be wrong. I think it's a good vaccine, but what if there's a better way to do it? I think we'll lose a lot of trust. And it's my fear. Yeah. It's interesting because one of the things that you said that stuck out to me is these have been around forever. And this has not, right? This right. is a new vaccine. mRNA vaccines are new, right? right. This is, um, the technology, yes. The technology it's is new. It's been around for a while, but right, using it as a vaccine is new. 
And it's also like it's still an emergency use authorization. And I think like right. part of me is also what is the emergency with kids? Right. Why is this right. an emergency? Right. No, you know, from all of the data that you just presented, it's not an emergency. So to A, issue it as an emergency youth authorization for this age group and then to mandate it is it just feels a little insane. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. And I think Honestly, I think it just happened too soon. They announced the mandate before it was CDC approved, before it was FDA emergency use authorized, before data really came out about it. I just think I, I do agree. I think it was too soon. And I've had, from my perspective, I'm here to be to be an advocate and an ally to patients and guide them in the best way. And that mandate made conversations sticky. Like people are are asking me about medical exemptions, and I don't. I, that makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And and I think. Ultimately, these decisions are so much better when it's the patient and their doctor and less from politicians, to be honest, because yeah. it, it doesn't feel as genuine, I think, when it comes from a politician. It feels more political. It, and especially it came off of that revote. Like it was it yes. literally felt like just a political move. Yes, <sighs> I know. It's, <laughs> and, and I'll tell you and I'll tell you, there's a lot of doctors that I talk to who are really smart doctors and they like the idea of a mandate. They're just, I think they look at it as, let's just get it done. Let's get it over with. And this is how we're going to move on from COVID. This is how we're going to end it once and for all. And I'm just not as convinced that's going to happen because it's a, it's a respiratory virus, because it's a worldwide pandemic. And just because California may get numbers up, if the rest of the country, the rest of the world isn't on board, it's still going to be, this is still going to be around is the reality. I, well, but by the way, I want to yes. talk a little bit about transmission rates. And okay. I, because I, you had done a post, I think it was a couple of days ago, and we were talking about, because we we're talking about transmission rates in school, yes. as well as the quarantining and the, imp yes. the impact that has on kids. You talk about comorbidities, and if you have an overweight kid and then they have to quarantine at home and they're sitting on the couch watching TV and eating snacks all day rather than being in school, or they're at odds with each other. <laughs> I know when my kids are at school, they're eating less snacks. So. <laughs> right. No, it's true. Uh, so it's, going back, let's yes. like, what is what is the transmission rate? amongst kids in schools. I don't know if you have that on yes, you. And yes, then oh it, yeah. And then is it better? Because obviously like you can still get COVID and transmit COVID. I know that it's right. It's like nine times less, but when you have the vaccine, but anyway, go on. <laughs> okay. All right. So by the way, this data is always changing because yes, with yes. kids, some of it's pre-Delta, post-Delta, with kids, we knew that before Delta, they weren't that great at transmitting the virus and they didn't get that sick from the virus. Post-Delta, it looks like they're better at transmitting it. I'm not quite sure on the statistics, but um, still not as good as adults. But I think with Delta, it didn't get kids sicker, but they were able to transmit it a little bit easier. Just to back up the reasoning, so I'm going to get a little mm -hmm. sciencey here, but I think this is something that we don't hear enough about because people can't under, it's, it makes it easier to understand why are kids so protected from COVID? But what it, the theory is, and this came out, this data came out of Singapore, but the virus enters the body through a receptor called the ACE2 receptor. So I know that sounds really sciencey and specific, but just bear with me here. So the mm -hmm. ACE2 receptor, it's found in the nose, it's found in the lungs, in the GI tract, so the, the intestines, it's found in the kidneys. And that this is where the virus enters the body. And the beautiful thing is that children before puberty have very few of these receptors. They either don't have any or they're underdeveloped. There's a paucity of them, a few, just a few of them. And uh, so it's literally like the kids will be exposed. It'll be in the nose, but it has a hard time actually penetrating and getting into their bodies. 
Fascinating. So okay. Yeah. Did you follow me? Okay. Yeah. 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 So you can swab a kid's nose and they're positive because the virus is respiratory, comes in through the, the nasal passage, but it literally has a hard time getting into the body, proliferating and therefore spreading well. So that's the theory why kids are, have been largely protected from COVID. And they do get it. It's very mild. The virus has a hard time really manifesting and spreading in the body. Got um, it. Okay. Got it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of transmission rates, so when you hear stories about families and COVID, oftentimes it's passed from adult to child. So in schools, it's very commonly when you hear about outbreak at schools, it's usually adult to adult or teacher to teacher, teacher to child, and very rarely, not impossible, but kid to kid. Mm-hmm. So just to shine a light on that, those statistics, um, and this is why it's crazy. And we think back to that we closed schools last year and that it maybe probably could have been doable to have schools opened and safely opened. So like, for example, in Los Angeles, they found that out of, there've been about a thousand plus cases and only one of those cases was, of those thousand positive cases, only one other kid got it. So the idea is, so what they're saying is that there's a a 0.2 transmission rate. Yeah, that was a 0.2, okay. Yeah. So just to put that in perspective. So if you have a kid that's positive, right? And we send everybody home that was in contact with that kid. Everybody that gets sent home of everybody that gets sent home, there's only 0.2% become positive. So if we send home a thousand kids from school, we'll get two cases turned positive after an exposure at school. And by the way, just turn positive. That doesn't just even mean positive. symptomatic. It's just it, turn yeah, it positive, does, right? It yeah. doesn't mean, or even more than that, it doesn't mean go to the hospital, get really sick. Because as a pediatrician, I'm really used to kids getting viruses, getting colds. That's part of childhood, right? Mm-hmm. Typically, a kid in preschool gets six to eight colds a year. This is, this is what kids get. This is part of their life. And so we're sending home a thousand contacts to, to save, to keep two positive kids out of school it just seems like a lot. And especially given how it's, it's such good news that kids don't spread very well. And this has been replicated like New York showed the same statistic. North Carolina, they looked at over 1 million kids and the same transmission rate was under 1%. So of all kids that get exposed. So just to put it, if you're a kid, if you get a call from your school, oh my goodness, your kid was exposed to a positive contact and they get sent home, there's a less than 1% chance that your child's going to be a positive. Yeah, which by the way, Isn't when that you get low? a call, it's so, it's so low. And just to put it into perspective, when school notified us that RSV was in the class, it was insane. Like, we got RSV, which is a doozy. No, our RSV <laughs> is a doozy. Talk about a doozy. That's a uh, 58,000 hospitalizations a year on average from RSV. That's always usually around the statistic. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to be scared ones. of something, I feel like RSV, it swept our family this year. That's why I, I think it's good to put that out there because we've had viruses, we've lived with viruses, but we never, we never went to these measures. And it makes sense. We've carried on the fear from what was happening with adults, but it's just been different for kids. Yep. Yeah. And I wish we could explore that more because bring kids back to normal living sooner rather than later, because I do think it's better for them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel like these. These poor, like, I, I guess I think about like my kids are all COVID kids because they are one, three and five. So it's been two years, like everything Luke, like Luca just refers to it as a virus. And it's wow. you know, like, it's like just it's an interesting 
And in 30 years, when they're all adults, like this will be something to talk about. (laughs) I hope so. I hope we're not still masking them then. (laughs) I know. I want to talk about masks a little bit. So this is it's an adjacent topic. It's not a vaccine. And I do want to I have a couple more questions about vaccine, but talking about masks, because I feel like this has been one of those things like I'm happy to put on a mask, right? Like I'll wear a mask. But I'm not an anti-masker. I'll just, but I really don't want my kids in masks. And they don't wear them correctly. Spit yes. every, like, it's just, are we, is is there data that supports that these kids should be in masks? And by the way, that's not even talking about the soci- sociological they're missing with without reading faces. Yes. <laughs> no, it's such a good question. I think, so masking, yeah, it's become... How do I say it? There's data all over the place and there's not great data. So there's definitely studies you can find that support mask use. There's also studies that support not wearing masks or that they they have not much benefit. From what I read, it looks like there is a benefit, but it's probably somewhere for kids around 10, 11, 12%. Okay. So I think when it depends, the cloth masks look like not very helpful. N95 masks look very helpful. We can't put our kids in a 95 mask. That doesn't make any sense. When kids <laughs> do so well with COVID, that just doesn't sound, <laughs> I don't think anybody's advocating for that or suggested <laughs> that, but definitely N95s, those really tight fitting masks are helpful. But yeah, I think they're helpful. I think the vaccine's a lot more helpful. I think where I struggle with it though, is I'd like to talk more about an off-ramp for kids. Mm-hmm. I want more discussion about when is it going to end? And that's what I'd like to hear more about because the data is really murky, to be honest. I think I think most of us would agree we don't want our kids in masks forever. We want our kids to to recognize faces and to see our faces, to know who's a stranger, to know who's a nice person, to to learn how to talk properly, to read emotion. I think mm-hmm. it's really important to see faces, really important to see faces. And we're starting to forget that it feels like. But it's interesting, like the CDC and the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, recommend masking to an older. The WHO does not recommend masking under six years old. In Europe, they're not recommending masking or they've never enforced masking under 12. And I think what I'd like to do more of is to compare and contrast. I'd, I'd like to figure out maybe we are doing it right, but maybe we're not. Or maybe we could do it better. Maybe six and under doesn't need masks like the WHO suggests. I think I'd like to talk more about the off-ramp, really. And Dr. Fauci said something like, oh, maybe when we get to, I think it was 20 cases per 100,000, maybe then we could talk about getting out of mass. And I'd like to hear more of those types of discussions because Mm -hmm. I do think that when rates are low, masking is probably not that beneficial. I certainly don't think masking is beneficial. Forgive me for saying this if anybody disagrees, but Outdoors, I think, is ridiculous. I like to find, <laughs> I like to, <laughs> I, I, I read, when you read about where outbreaks happen, where transmission happens, it's two thirds of the time, it's within a home. Um, oh my goodness, it's so hard to find a case where it's spread outdoors. And I think we're seeing this, like we're seeing people go to the forum and people go to live concerts and I'm not hearing about outbreaks. Outdoors seems very safe. Again, we can't get to zero. And if it's pretty close to zero, I think we should opportun- opportunize on it. Uh, did I pronounce that right? Yeah, Opportunize? I, I, Opportunize? Feel, I feel like it is. <laughs> okay, okay. But yeah, it pains me when my daughter tells me, she says, mommy, like at school, it was so hot and we played soccer with masks on. It was really uncomfortable. And I, I feel bad because I don't really think it's helping. I think, I, and I try to think like, where's this fear coming from outdoors? I think it's happening because there were some outbreaks with, with sports 
there were some outbreaks traced to, to sports teams, but I think that's actually happening because they're getting together indoors also. They're mm-hmm. sharing rooms when they travel and they're congregating indoors. I don't actually think it's really happening from running around outside. So that's one thing I would like to end like ASAP is masking kids outdoors. That's uh, yeah. Yeah. I, oh, my God. Our our school just sent a, a questionnaire or survey to, to the parents to be like, how comfortable would you be if we remove? Because basically we drop our kids off. Everything's outside. We, right. You know, parking lot, the, the all the schools are it's like motel style where all the it's outdoors. And then. Yes. And we all have to wear our masks. Like, I don't recognize any of the parents because we're a weird thing. And I'm like, we're all outside. Like, why? I don't I think it's so funny because I think that 95% of the parents are also like, why are we all masked? Like, we did a whole. Right. It's like, like a politeness, I think. Or you want to be uh, respectful. Yes. And <laughs> yes, I think that. Or there's but also, fear. It I don't feels know. like there's a lot. of There's fear. And then there's also virtue signaling, which there's right. just like a lot of that happening. Like, right. I'm going to mask because I'm going to keep you safe. And I think, right. by the way, I think that was the worst marketing campaign of the masking thing is it's not for me it's for you and I'm like is it like right like no I know why are we doing this (laughs) I actually feel I don't know if I want to regret saying this but I agree with you I think there's this feeling and I understand it it's you want to do what's right to help your neighbor I think that's a beautiful thing and I agree with that but the reality is the best way to protect you from getting bad outcomes from COVID is to vaccinate yourself and get a booster (laughs) like people that are dying from COVID most by far are unvaccinated adults. So I don't know, I guess there's an argument you could make for protecting people that can't get vaccinated, but there's really not, those people that are immunocompromised have to worry, I don't want to sound insensitive, but they have other things to worry about also if they're really that immunocompromised. So I think it's, there's that, do you know what I mean? There's that feeling like I have to get my kid vaccinated to protect grandma, which is a beautiful thing to say, but but grandma should also, the best way for grandma to protect herself really and truly is to get vaccinated and get a booster. Yeah, I think like that's been my issue with the vaccine too, as everyone, like all the, all the arguments about getting the vaccine have been about if you don't get vac- vaccinated, you're a selfish human being because like you're perpetuating right. COVID. Right. And I think that is just a signal of the times that we are in and oh we're not fighting about trump anymore so let's just let's fight about like masks or the vaccine or let's just get on one side of the thing let's make it political and then make the demonize the other side i just think an attack on a personal character yeah and and that's what it's become yeah yeah and it's interesting because you say like i i got so it's funny because like i got vaccinated with the information that i had back last march or whatever it was one diabetic He was very concerned about whether he was immunocompromised. He was just like, look, I want us to get vaccinated. And so I did. I don't, I don't, like, I feel differently about my kids. I don't, like, know what the impact is on fertility. I don't know what the impact is on, um, like, you know, a lot of the reading is, oh, is there, like, does it cause inflammation? And I just want more information. Sure. And I, I think that it's, those concerns are very easily brushed over and people can make me feel like I'm part of the problem, that's a problem. No, I, you couldn't say it any better. I think one thing I really am careful with patients is if they don't want to get the vaccine, I, I want to know why. And, and a lot of times, honestly, people have good reasons. I have a mom who told me recently she got the first vaccine and she got a clot in her leg and she has a blood clotting issue and she's scared to get the second and her, where she works as being they're not understanding her fear. And I, 
I think, gosh, to not get where she's coming from, you're not, we're not really putting ourselves in her shoes. She's got two little kids and she's nervous. Or like another common thing is someone's already had COVID recently and they're reading about natural immunity and they don't feel like they're getting listened to or credit for having had the illness. And I understand that perspective, but I, oh, go ahead. Oh, on that. Sorry. Because I, so I've read a couple different things and so I would love your perspective on it. Yes. Let's say 50% of kids have already been exposed to COVID. So if they have natural immunity, right. does the does the vaccine re- rewire you in a way that like you're no longer going to be able to fight it in the same way that you would have if you didn't? I, I don't think so. No, okay. I think if anything, you'll get double protection. Okay. Um, I think there. Yeah, when you see people that have had the illness and get the vaccine, they actually have even more robust immunity. Okay. So that's what I did. I, I really didn't want to get COVID again. I, I got COVID and I still got the vaccine shortly after because I honestly just at work, I really wanted to be as possible for patients okay. that I'm around and I'm, I'm around sick people. But yeah, I, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. But I think, um, so a couple of things I want to touch on what you're saying. The first thing I want to put your mind at ease, it does not look like there's any fertility issues with the vaccine. It looks really safe so far. For anyone listening who's, you know, got some nerves, some doubts about getting the vaccine, I can also say that the 12-year-olds and older, we've now given millions, I think 7 million so far in the United States, and we haven't seen any severe risk factors. And also kids that are 5 to 11, they're getting a third of the dose that 12 and up are getting. So hopefully we'll see fewer side effects because of that factor. So I have, I, have a, yes. I have a question on, this is just like a, a question. Yeah. So let's say you're like, fertility is not an issue. How do they test for that? Because I'm like, 12-year-olds aren't getting yes. pregnant yet. Like when that 12-year-old <laughs> right. is 30, what is, I guess, what are they looking, right. what are the markers that they're looking at? Okay. All right. So I think this came about a couple of reasons. One is some girls were getting irregular menstrual cycles after the vaccine. Okay. They're not seeing that tied to fertility issues. People that now can get pregnant, they're not seeing any different rates of miscarriage. They're not seeing any different rates of getting pregnant. And typically with vaccine side effects, the reactions or the side effects that are apparent within the first six to eight eight weeks. Mm -hmm. So we don't usually get surprises years later. Okay. I mean, I think that's just, that's something that someone can say to us to make us nervous. And I guess we'll never know till years later. But traditionally, that's just not what happens with vaccines. Okay. It's just, it's like the illness also when someone says, oh, you've had COVID, it's going to come to get you in five years. And that's just not usually how viruses work. Once you're better, you're better. Okay. Um, so I do think, so I think that we're going to see, but these are good questions. I think it's, it's reasonable to have questions. I, I think questions are really important and I think we'll get more answers over time to make people feel better, but I think it's important. I do want to bring back what you were saying about the virtual signaling. And <laughs> I think this is a really, I think one thing I've seen when I see COVID in the office, most kids get better. I can be reassuring. But the theme that I've noticed, and maybe you've noticed it too, but there's been so many families I talk to where they tell me a story about how they no longer speak to their friend. Uh, They had this best friend and they no longer speak because they have a different feeling about vaccines. They no longer see their in-laws because their in-laws aren't as COVID careful. They no longer talk to. And that makes me really sad, like that we're we're losing relationships over COVID makes me sad. I don't know. what What do you think about that? It's it is so fascinating how difference of opinion, how polarizing COVID in general has been. I think that I see it happening. I totally agree. Like I've I've seen friends like I like I, I see how that happens. 
Yes. And I think that in the same way that politics is polarizing COVID, because it's taken on a very political thing, it's not it's not like just a virus, right? right. If you asked your friend, do you get the flu vaccine? It's so funny. I have I have the flu vaccine conversation with people all the time. Uh-huh. And if they don't get the flu vaccine, I'm not like, you're a bad person. Like, it's, it's right. just, oh, you, okay, you don't get, you don't believe in it. That's fine. Like, cool, whatever. Right. I, I do. And here's why I do. That's right. like the dip. But I feel like this has become who you are. Yes. And like the very, and honestly, I think because everyone's like at home, no one had anything better to do than to just be behind their keyboards or be judgmental about the way that people are behaving. And it, it all gets back though to risk, like your risk analysis. And right. if you do not, like I had a very different risk profile during the, during the deep quarantines. Right. Because we, we like my, we weren't seeing anyone at risk. So our risk profile was just that of our families. Like I wasn't seeing, we also had a, you know, small group of people that we saw and that was it. But I think like everyone has a different risk profile and you can't judge people for having a different one than you. I agree. No, I, I agree. I think that's very well said because you don't know what other people's life is like, really. We can guess, but you really don't know what their life is like. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it is, it's very sad that, it's very sad to me to think about losing friends over this. I see how it happens, though. Like, it's a very slippery slope. And <laughs> but you're right. You're right. Looking at the flu every year, we had kids pass away from the flu every year. And I don't remember people, maybe every once in a while, someone asked me if I get my kids the flu shot, probably because I'm a pediatrician, they were curious my opinion on it. But I don't remember feeling there weren't such strong feelings about the flu, about the flu vaccine. The closest I would say is, is the, like, in general, anti-vax being like, like, I will say anti-vaxxers, not being, being vaccine hesitant is very different than like feeling. But like now I do truly understand if you've seen vaccine injury, like I get how you're like, how do you not see it? But like, again, it's a very small percentage. And all of the other, you know, benefits of of having being vaccinated, especially for kids that can't get vaccinated, all that. But again, I think like ultimately you have to make the decision that's right for your family. (laughs) What's interesting is in the Scandinavian countries, they have a much higher vaccine percentage than we do. And they don't have mandates. And some people will say, oh, they're just a different type than Americans. America, they have more faith in their government than we do. But I don't know. Part, part of me feels like when you're forced, I don't think Americans like it that much. I think they, they tend to, I wonder if we had, and we'll never know, but if we had approached this gentler, like we've got the vaccine, that 27% that want it right away, let's Give it to them. The parents that want to wait and see, some of them will come on board. Over time, more will come on board. Getting people, getting good information out there, making parents feel more comfortable about it. To me, that would have felt better than than immediately making it something that parents feel like they're forced to do. Yeah. I also, it's, if you want to get, like, totally. but are very... Like the foundation of America, right, is we're going to be our own people and no one's going to tell and we're going to secede from Britain. And I, so I think like we really do have a right, have an a aversion pers- to being told what to do. Like, right. 
I and like I think like when I think about and like people who will I cannot imagine going into Costco and getting into a battle with the person who's checking to see if I'm a member here because I don't want to wear a mask like that. I'm just like, who has time for that? It's not like your person. Just put the mask on. This person's making fifteen dollars. Just move on. Like, right. It's I, I just can't imagine having that sort of energy in my day every day. And but I, so I find it very funny with when these people are like really feel like it's an impingement on their like civil liberties. But OK, <laughs> you mean just, which one? The mask, you mean? I'm just yeah. like, just who cares? Just do it. Yeah, like, <laughs> I know. But I guess like in their in their mind, they're like, it's a slippery slope right now. It's the mask. But there are people that take it very seriously. And I. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, it's not, I think it's not a big deal. I just put the mask on. But then somebody who really believes it's causing a problem, I don't know. I try to stay sympathetic. I find the more I try to stay sympathetic to people and try to get in their shoes, the less annoyed I am at them. Yeah. The less judgmental I feel. (laughs) I have one last question about COVID immunity. So it is, if you have had COVID, it's the actual immunity is is significantly better, right? It's like than the vaccine. Okay. So this is a tricky question because you can find studies to support both directions, but I'll tell you what I find in general. The best study so far that I know of was done in Israel where they looked at people, I believe it was six months after having the illness naturally and having had the vaccine. And what they found was that both groups didn't get reinfected very easily a second time. But when they did get reinfected, there was a 27 times higher chance of going to the hospital if you were vaccinated. Okay. So the idea is that like the actual illness has longer sustaining immunity, that the, they both work, but that the vaccine drops off faster. And to me, it makes sense because this is not an ad. This is not. I think what people get sensitive to is that that we're advocating to get the illness. That's not it at all. Mm-hmm. But it's if you've had the illness, you can take solace in the fact that there is some good immunity that makes sense because when the body fights an illness, we're fighting your body's fighting the entire virus, and there's multiple proteins on the virus that your body's going to make antibodies to. The vaccine is only targeting this spike on top of the. I don't know if you've heard about this. it's called coronavirus because yeah. there's a spike on the top. And so the vaccine's targeting specifically that spike protein. And as that spike protein mutates, which it will over time because viruses mutate, the vaccine's not going to work as effectively on the spike protein. But when you naturally fight an infection, you've got antibodies to multiple parts of the virus. The idea is that it, it makes sense to me that if you've had the illness, you probably will have longer lasting immunity. But there's a lot of questions out there. So one big question is people will say, if you've had asymptomatic illness, are you making as much of an antibody response? Probably not. It's it's hard to really say. Mm -hmm. Um, People will say the vaccine, you're giving like the same dose every time. So it's easier to measure. It's more reliable. I don't know. But it, it looks and the other tricky part is people are measuring. Have you heard about measuring antibodies? I only on Joe Rogan. (laughs) So people want to check their antibodies, but it's not a good way to check for immunity because antibodies decline over time. And then this other part of your immune system called T cells, they take over and we're not checking T cells. So it's not enough to say your antibodies have gone down because you probably still have immunity. What really matters, and I say this because so many of the studies will say, oh, antibodies have declined. What really matters is who's getting reinfected and who's getting reinfected and getting sick. So if you get reinfected and it's just in your nose, you're not symptomatic. To me, that's not a big deal. 
right. but who's getting sick. So there'll be other studies to support that vaccines are better, but just be careful for anyone listening out there. It's not enough to say antibodies have declined or gone up. What matters is in real life, who's getting reinfected and getting sick. Got it. Does that and make so sense? I, it, yeah. it does make sense. With with that, I just have one one final question when it comes to the both like, work. Both it, both give immunity. Both give immunity. <laughs> yes. If I have had it, and let's say my kid, all my kids have had it. Um, yes. That's not being, even though that immunity is better, right? Like we agree that it's better. That doesn't matter to my school. Schools are not, are they taking infection into consideration? No, I think um, at my kid's school at LUSD, if they've had COVID, you get 90 days presumed not getting reinfected. The data shows that you likely aren't to get infected for at least probably six or seven months after. Of course, some breakthroughs happen, but it looks around like 1%. Okay. But yeah, I, th- I actually think a lot of these, a lot of the debates would, would be a little bit lessened if the public gave a little more quote unquote credit to natu- to having had the illness. Yeah. If we did something like you've had the illness, you can show proof. You just need one mRNA vaccine, which by the way, I think would be fantastic protection. It looks like according to data, it's just something to think in that realm where we're not ignoring that natural immunity is something. And I think the question I have is, which we'll find it over time, is how long can we say natural immunity lasts for? Is it six months? Is it a year? Won't last forever. But I think people would appreciate some sort of acknowledgement that yeah. they do have protection. And now, do you think, like, we're getting to the end here. Yes. Do you think that, we're, like, like we're, you, you mentioned, like, we're in a pandemic. Yes. But what is the criteria for us being out of a pandemic and this just being part of everyday life? Like, coronavirus is like the flu, is like RSV, is like, it's just part of our everyday life. That's the million dollar question. I think we're heading there. I think. We've got a vaccine to all those that want it, five and above. I, if you want my honest answer, I think it's going to come down to policymakers, like when we in the public, when we've decided that, okay, we're this, yeah, we're there's going to be we've accepted there's going to be a little bit of COVID around forever, but this is a level that we can that we can deal with. I actually think we might be there right now. We've seen in California numbers and hospitalizations have stayed pretty steady. For the last couple of months. And I wonder if it's just because this is the level that we're going to have to learn to live with. It won't ever be zero. I think we will see peaks and, and valleys. Maybe in the wintertime, as we congregate more indoors, we'll see some spikes like we do in typical flu seasons. But I think that's a really good question. I think it's whenever we decide as a public that there's a level that we're, we're, we're willing to live with. And yeah. I think that's what happened in pandemics in the past, like with the great influenza of 1918. The it never flu. went away. Yeah. yeah, the Spanish yeah. flu. It never went away. We never got a vaccine for it. But I think after, I think like 18 months or so, they just, it got enough spread into the country. There was enough immunity from having had the illness and recovered and it never went away, but they decided to live with it. And <laughs> I don't know. I think they we'll didn't see- have Facebook and Instagram though. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have, I know, I know. But I think it'll be interesting. I think we're going to see like states by states decide it's over. Countries by countries decide it's over. I'll probably hopefully learn from one another. And yeah. I hope California is not the last. Oh, who knows? Last. Who knows? Maybe it'll be once the vaccine's out and about and the numbers yeah. are high enough. I don't know. The most popular, I would polled our audience to see um, if they had any specific questions for you. And the most popular question was, when do you think that the six month to five years will be available? Oh. So if you have any information on that, it I really buried like, the lead here, but <laughs> it looks like it looks like 
after the new year. So okay. I think they're definitely rolling kids in the trials. I don't know if two to five will come out first after the new year, but it, they're studying as low as six months. And they're doing three micrograms for Pfizer for that age group. The 12 and older are getting 30 micrograms, five to 11 are getting 10 and then uh, two to five, I believe it's three micrograms. So, By the way, I find it's a little crazy that my five-year-old yes. is getting the same dose as an 11-year-old. Okay, great question. So this is a, co- the reason is it has nothing to do with weight. Okay. It has to do with the fact that younger kids mount better immunity. Okay. Yeah. And this is true. A lot of vaccines, like the flu vaccine, we give the same dose to adults that we give to three-year-olds. Oh, yeah. Hepatitis B, we give the same dose. Yeah. There's a lot of vaccines where kids get the same dose as adults. And there's also vaccines where kids get fewer doses. So for example, the HPV vaccine, the, the cervical cancer vaccine, when kids are 11, we give them two doses. If they wait till after the age of 15, they get three doses because the idea is that like younger kids have a more robust immune system. Man, that is like one of the most brilliant vaccines, I feel like. I, that was not around HPV? when I was a kid. Yeah, I know. I agree. <laughs> I, and by the way, in vac- I, I just end with vaccines are great. This vaccine is great. I really think that this is going to be, I think we're really lucky that we live at a time when we have the science and the ability to make a vaccine like this. And if you think about how incredible it is, we didn't even have this virus sequenced in 2020 until early 2020. And now it's been given to, I think, Four billion people are fully vaccinated and seven billion have had at least one vaccine. It's pretty incredible. It's saving lives. It's keeping people out of the hospital. But I also really think it's reasonable to have questions. I think it's really reasonable and I encourage it to have questions, to to talk to your doctor out there, to to not be afraid to ask your questions. And no, I, a- I I really appreciate this was like just a very enjoyable conversation for me. I feel like I appreciate your perspective so much. And I feel like I hope anyone listening got a lot out of this because I think it was just a very open conversation that people could get some value out of. Thank you so much. I hope so. I hope it wasn't too too many details. No, it was perfect. I even I'm like, I, I could have gotten a little deeper <laughs> Just for my own fascination. So, yeah, no, and I'll just say the other thing is just anybody listening, just I encourage you just see a friend, see your family, spend time with people. I I feel bad that this virus has gotten in the way of relationships and human connection. Yes, yes. Well, tell people where they can find you. Okay. So, I started a podcast called Ask Dr. Jessica. I put up an episode every Monday and I talk about various pediatric topics. So, hopefully, anyone that looks will find something that's relevant to your life. So I have a podcast, Ask Dr. Jessica, and I have an Instagram account called Also Ask Dr. Jessica, where I just put up different things about COVID or kids that I think are relevant and interesting. So yeah, that's where. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Okay, that's all for today. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a mama friend and leave us a review. If you're pregnant, postpartum, or trying to conceive, you can download the Juna app completely free for seven days. The app is available for iOS and Android and is designed to be your guide for all things health and fitness for this very special time of your life. If you have any suggestions for episodes you would like to hear or anyone you think would be a great guest on the show, please email me directly at sarah at Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week.